Pour yourself a sweet tea, pull up a lawn chair, and turn the page with us. You're listening to Right on Mississippi, a podcast taking you inside the minds of America's most treasured wordsmiths. I'm Ebony Lamumba, and Right on Mississippi is produced in partnership with Mississippi Public Broadcasting for the Mississippi Book Festival, the South's Literary Lawn Party. I'm Matt Sawyer, live at the Mississippi Book Festival with author Tyreek White. It's great to have you. Happy to be here. Man, second Brooklyn uh, native today after James McBride was oh, in the house earlier. Oh, nice. Nice. Yeah, yeah so yeah. it's cool to have the uh, New York connection down south. Right, you get like a, you know, older perspective. You get a younger perspective. That's what I'm saying, yeah, mirroring nice. your book and generations. So how long have you been in Mississippi now? You said five years? Five years. Yeah, I did my um, MFA at Ole Miss and I graduated 2020 during the pandemic. Um, so, yeah. I've been cooling in, in Oxford. Okay. Time Not the worst place to cool as a creative person. So, I, you know, this, I'm telling you, I, I was blown away by We Are Haunting. Like, I was a little skeptical with the hype, like I am of everything that has that much hype. And then I read it, and I was like, wow, this is going to be a really good author for a long time. And so much so that I had actually given a, I give gifts on my own podcast to everybody I interview. I'd given a Jasmine Ward book to someone who I knew might love Jasmine Ward. She'd already read it. And that was the first time I'd ever given someone a gift that they'd read. So I was like, I know what I'm going to replace that gift with. And it was your book. Oh, wow. Because I know she's going to love it. I know she's going to love it. But, um, you know, the one thing I was so curious about, because timing, as you said, with graduating uh, during the pandemic and, Mm. you know, getting into writing this book, um, communities like yours, Right. Mm -hmm. This this is a a hometown story in many ways. Uh, They're ignored. I'm really curious. Why now with this story that you told about Brooklyn and East New York? Yeah. Um, I think a lot of working class stories are ignored. Um, A lot of working class towns, neighborhoods, communities, they're sort of, you know, put off to the side. I think now uh, it was it was important for me to write this was because of sort of the saturation of New York stories, the perception of New York stories. You know, a lot of New York stories are just, you know, about the village or like from Central Park down to, you know, 14th Street or something. And I really wanted to talk about sort of the the communities around the city, the the cogs that sort of make the city work the way it works. Um, the people coming from Brooklyn, the people coming from Queens, the Bronx, the sort of outer barrel um, communities. Uh, and, and that, that you know, that sort of relates to a lot of places across, you know, the country. They're kind of these these hubs, and we forget kind of the, you know, the surrounding neighborhoods, the ancillary communities that literally funnel workers into the city to keep it going. Um, yeah. So I thought it was important to kind of... Uh, write real stories about people from these communities um, and do it in a way that's, you know, creative, inventive, that captures the wonder of the ways I grew up um, and what better way with ghosts or, or, you know, these elements of the supernatural. Yeah. Yeah. I love that wonder. You you had one interview where you talked about how an apartment is mystical to you. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that? Like how like portals, right? Within right. just one space that we all take for granted is just an apartment. Right. But for you, 
right? This extends to the ghost. Like you see it as mystical. Right. Right. And it's, and it transcends a lot of like, you know, there's a lot of kind of dimensionality, you know, so we'll start with like the apartment building, like having all of these kind of pockets of different cultures, different backgrounds, different upbringings. I talk about, you know, going to one floor and it smells like, you know, Dominican food and then going to, you know, a floor above me and it's smelling like Jamaican food, you know? So just like that proximity to so many different kinds of um, experiences, cultures, it like collapses everything, you know? So even, you know, I talk about the lineage between a lot of these characters that take place in New York, the lineage reaching back to the South, you know, the great migration, thinking of that as kind of a portal or a dimension, you know, so you have this kind of Northern, you know, East New York story, uh-huh. but it, there, there's the, the presence, the traditions, the histories of all of these, um, I guess that Southern lineage, yeah. Um, so it kind of, yeah, it, a lot of this book is collapsing <laughs> these kind of what you would think disparate pieces or, or um, traditions or communities or these things and kind of pulling them together. And, and that's New York. It's often the experience of just, you know, living in a space of um, different types of people. And that could be captured anywhere. But also... Yeah, that exploring that kind of collapsing of time, collapsing of space and like what that does. I think that's why I vibe so much with this book is like a lot of books that I read, a lot of shows, movies that I watch deal with just the amount of ways you can play with time and ancestry. And I'm glad you bring up the Great Migration because I don't know if you uh, came to the exhibition at the art museum here last summer. Um, It was a movement in every direction. Legacies of the Great Migration. Funny, that came to uh, Brooklyn Museum, so I did see it. Okay, yeah. So I want to shout out Ryan Dennis, Mm -hmm. who since moved from Mississippi, and uh, Jessica Bell Brown, Mm -hmm. who's from Baltimore Museum of Art. They're the ones who put that together. And Mm -hmm. I I mean, the the connection with the Great Migration in your story was really powerful because a lot of it deals with what was lost. Mm -hmm. Right. And when you're in this land of, you know, the, the... is foreign, right? Yeah. And you're trying to reclaim identity or, you know, you talk about return. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of this was a story of return. So right. how did that play, like the, those legacies of the Great Migration play into uh, that collapsing in, in New York? How did, I mean, this was an epic attempt, uh, actually attempt successful right. attempt <laughs> to, to, to bring all these histories together. But actually, maybe this is the right question. You had the question of the year for me. How do I tell this story without telling all the stories? Mm. Yeah. How did you go about tackling that question? Yeah. Well, and that started from a place of, you know, the, the, how do I put this? That, that came from a place of, um, the business side of publishing. Um, Mm. but also in kind of, Forming Kali, who's the main character of this, and, and forming Key, who's his mom, um, who whose perspectives we both follow, um, it was important to kind of, I guess, hold on to 
or what was allowed in terms of um because these stories already are like come from a vulnerable place whether whether personal or you talk about uh these sorts of communities are very vulnerable yeah um so i wanted to be careful in claiming or reclaiming or retrieving kind of these stories that belong to us that belong to our our southern uh lineage that belong to our histories but you know how does that speak towards something new and i think you know, I had the voices of my homies. I had the voices of my older brothers and, and my mom and my grandmother. Yeah. Um, I had all these voices in me and wanting to capture that, but also, you know, what's what's my voice? What's Kali's voice? What's what is what are what are these stories if I can't tell them? <laughs> like, can I make them new? Can I find new ways kind of out or new ways? new ways in to these stories if that yeah that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah definitely i um yeah it's so hard when you know as you said there's been so many working class stories told i know i mean i tony morrison tony k bombara those yeah. are huge inspirations for you mm-hmm. how did they help guide you to to take on this story um well just tony being unabashed i just said this on a panel but you know reading kind of how she you know wrote beloved um and initially she didn't want to kind of delve into that you know because it's 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 a it's a dark thing to write about it's it's full of trauma and it's painful um but she writes you know she would be and i'm paraphrasing but she would be a coward if she didn't you know um and i think that helped me sort of write the story I needed to without pathologizing the characters, without flattening what this story could be. Because, I, again, we've read plenty of working-class stories. Um, we've read plenty of black and brown working-class stories. Often, they're flattened or, or kind of, again, pathologized. Mm-hmm. So I think my intent, um, which is why I read Morrison, which is why I read Tony K. Mambara, which is why I read Gloria Naylor, and how do you take these these characters from these places and write about them truthfully but but caring you know you know i yeah. I hope what comes across is that I care about these characters I care about the people in this book and and it's not like a sentimentality you know because these characters come from me in a sense, but it's that kind of connection to and wanting to honor um their voices and their histories. I can. I mean, the the care is apparent from the first page. And, you know, lovingly honest are the stories I like. Mm-hmm. You don't have to love everything about it, people or the communities you come from, but there's love. And I think those. You know, I said it all along. Clintisha Sibley here in Macomb, Mississippi. I, she said, you know, I'm done with success stories when she right. moved home. I want love stories. Mm-hmm. And I, I was like, oh, that's that it's a lot like your story where it's, it's so personal. It's so intimate. It, it, I mean, it hurts it to read it in a way because you can tell how close it is. Um, and yeah, so I appreciate that care that you take with the characters because, and, and, you know, you're, you're telling these stories that, that are, you know, vulnerable. You're being vulnerable writing them. One of the threads that I, I picked up on in the book that was really interesting was that when this was a quote that sums it up, but he's like, was that art? 
the inconsolable danger of being seen? What does art mean? Why does it matter? You know, that plays in a lot at the museum, but really throughout. Um, I'm curious how that question of, of being seen played into to writing these characters. I think I think it played a huge part. And and side note, like this book is also a meta kind of rumination on art. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and, yeah, you take that on pretty pretty powerfully. Right. Yeah. And and even back to the last question, like, you know, what stories to tell? Like as an author, asking myself which stories am I allowed to claim or reclaim? Um, but back to your original question, um, which was yeah the the inconsolable danger of being seen right. and and who art is for I mean that was a big yeah. it seemed like thread in it especially uh um when he, I mean, you kind of you kind of make fun of some of the the more uh, highbrow art world and people using fancy words which right like what what spaces can you exist in in art and, and what stories are valued compared to you know, silence. But yeah, I'm curious about that whole vulnerability of being seen in this. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, and it's not to downplay, um, sort of the highbrow stuff. It's, it's also to pull up, you know, what I think is valuable, important art. So there's a lot of, uh, you know, movies I like, there's a lot of, uh, you know, music I like, Mm -hmm. um, in juxtaposition with kind of these, these, um, it's kind of highbrow references, you know. You got um, you got a bunch of Greek references in there. You have like uh, references to earlier works of literature. You know, it's all in this kind of literary tradition. Yeah. You know, wanting to be so. I guess it's it's me wanting to be be seen in that tradition, mm-hmm. but also kind of pushing back and questioning. You know, why are these things so important, and why can't these other things be as important? Um. So I think me being seen or or the characters being seen, it kind of mirrors each other. You know, yeah. I did want to be seen in this tradition, but I also, you know, I'm also a massive rap fan. I'm also, you know, I love Paid in Full, uh, the movie. I love, you know. These, yeah, these, and that's apparent, man. Your, right. your reference, it's funny because the, the, the scene where they were listening to uh, records in the apartment mm. um, and, and you talk about, like the, they're talking about intertextuality right. in a highly intertextual book, um, but the one scene that really, really stuck with me was the Dilla, mm, mm-hmm. the Dilla scene. That was genius. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and you know, I got a lot of Detroit connections. Went to school in Southeast Michigan. Have a lot of friends that are still in Detroit, so they'll appreciate this. But talk about what that scene was trying to say about the because uh, you dropped the line. Who's John Cage? Was that? Yeah. Was that? <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, that kind of I think yeah. sums up a little bit of what you're trying to say. Right. Right. And John Cage is, you know, exceptional. Like yeah. you know, in and how we make music today. I could argue the same for Dilla, you know what I mean? Like and, and the way Dilla um used that very same kind of intertextuality in sampling and repurposing kind of music that may have been lost in sort of black soul tradition or black jazz tradition you know kind of reclaiming these things and being a preeminent hip-hop producer um i think you have to question like like for me the reason that was even i think you know the 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 chapter 
is in that scene is kind of tracing sort of sampling you know i think i forget what song was it a red man song that um but i'm I'm literally sort of listing like all right there's there's this song you know here are the here are the other songs released decades and decades earlier repurposed into this song i'm like the whole time i'm thinking you know t.s Eliot, who's like you know i mean you know, low low key might be anti-Semitic, but you know the the his kind of claims to what modernity was, or like you know what sort of this this new literary tradition was becoming, and it was it was that intertextuality, it was that kind of linking the present work to kind of this long literary tradition, and I thought, does hip hop not you know do that? <laughs> Um, so yeah, so a lot of that, like, was just me kind of trying to explain that in a way that these things kind of, these theories, these high, you know, elevated theories that I learned in college, you know, sort of relate to this like lowbrow, I mean, now commercial, but back then radical, um, you know, kind of, um, indie art form. Yeah. Yeah, I love it because the a lot so much of this book feels like that appreciation for for what is lost or what could be lost if we don't preserve it. And I don't think I've ever read a book that said cavern as many times, even though there technically like weren't many caverns. But, mm-hmm. but talk about that. Right. Why you use that word? Because when you talked about um, Dilla, you know, things going in a black hole and kind of being gone, mm. it feels like the museum was this cavern that represented a lot of what what you're trying to say with with that. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of this space of, you know, and like thinking of museums as, or thinking of, not even thinking of museums. Let me, let me, thinking of blackness as this indomitable, indescribable, you know, and if you listen to certain people, blackness was a, process or transformation caused by economic um, factors in this country being slavery. So if you go that route and thinking that blackness exists as it currently does only because of slavery. Um, and, and this kind of pushes back against like that that's solely an economic process. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, I'm more in line with Fred Moten where it's, it's, kind of esoteric is this is the this metaphysical kind of experience that we're constantly trying to interrogate and find out and and define but my whole thing is i don't know if it could be defined it's like yeah. trying to quantify the human spirit it's like these things are you know you can't really define these things um so the cavern or thinking about like these places or spaces where these cultural products exist, right? So, you know, the museum isn't the only cavern. I, I consider the neighborhood also a cavern. You know, there's all these kind of cultural products um, not hung up on the walls. But, like, you know, the, the, they exist, basically. Yeah. And, um, and is it a definable space? No. But I think, you know, again, like, a lot of the language I use is just me being living in Mississippi for five years. Yeah. <laughs> so, 
you know. Um, well, I'm curious about being being away. Right. But, you know, Mississippi, again, I've said this before, I'll, it, it's a huge story here. People leaving and coming back. Mm-hmm. Um, some people do, some people don't, but, but that return is really powerful. And, you know, you went out to, to California, yeah, right. Yeah, and, uh, yo, shout out Jonathan Letham. Yes. Um, oh, gee. motherless, motherless Brooklyn was a big book for me. Mm-hmm. Um, person with Tourette syndrome, never had myself mm-hmm. centered in the story. Right. That was mind blowing, man. Yeah. Uh, I read that for the first time in college. So if you ever talk to him again, you know, oh, uh, that's, that's the homie. Yeah. Tell him. Tell him I said thank you. <laughs> um, but I'm curious, like going to other places and even being in Mississippi, how that changed your relationship to writing a story about New York? Mm, yeah. Um, yeah, I kind of alluded to it. Uh, it changed even the language that I, I choose to use. Um, I did an event uh, with Amani Perry, and she shared this quote by Gil Scott-Heron, and I'm going to butcher it, but, you know, I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> but, you know, and and he's a New York art, artist. Um, and he said, anyone who wants to learn how to write uh, should come to the South, needs to go to the South. And I didn't know this at the time. I just, you know, I was looking at MFA programs. Who will accept me? And, and I did have the choice to, to stay in New York, but I chose Mississippi. And I think... First of all, I'm all the better for it, but I'm I'm a much better writer, you know, because this book and it's about New York, it's about this public housing tenement or the, this family, you know, throughout the generations uh growing up in this you know, apartment building. Um but the neighborhood is such a you know, environmentally is such a interesting place and you know, being down here, going to, you know, the Waveland, Waveland or the coast, you know, helped me kind of talk about the marshland. Um, you know, being in near Louisiana helped me talk about the swamplands. Um, because throughout, you know, you, you see, you imagine tenement after apartment building, after warehouse, after all these things. But really, this land sits on a estuary, you know, it's right across from a bay. Um, Jamaica Bay, which yeah. spills out into the Atlantic Ocean. Um, there's a lot of, you know, it's on swampland. You know, the, you know, the mob used to bury bodies back there. You know, um, so taking into consideration the environmental factors of it, like being down, like I wouldn't, I, I would have never thought of that. Um, just being in New York, yeah. but like coming down here and sort of, oh wait, this land is. You know, and I, I and you know, I don't want to like, oh, the South, they they love the land and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, but yeah. like, there was a deeper appreciation with with space, with spatiality. So I think, you know, it, it colored my language. It colored how I wanted to talk about, you know, this neighborhood I grew up in for twenty five years. Um, it changed everything, and and also the writers writing down here. You know, I was exposed to a Kiese Layman. I was exposed to a Jasmine Ward. Um, yeah, it did wonders <laughs> for me. And then, you know, maybe I'll I'll write my California epic at some point. But like <laughs> being in California, again, changed a lot of um, how I write. 
or like the voice in which I write in. Um, you know, because I, I could be very, you know, just like northern, hip, cool kind of in this in this uh, lyrical sense. But I think, you know, traveling, um, considering worlds and spaces in different dimensions, in different different lenses or different perspectives, um, it just it just helped. It, it's invaluable. On the marshland, the water, all of that. I mean, even the historical imaginings that you so seamlessly weaved in about what the land was like before mm-hmm. all of the tenement buildings, before all of the factories. Like, right. that was a critical part of why the right. book was so mm-hmm. powerful. Because, again, in the same ways that you're weaving the ghost in and out of the story, it's the land of what it was before, what it is now, and, like, what it means right. to the people that live there. And doing uh, that research was, you know, because, again, like, I didn't, I didn't know the, the land... <laughs> or the language I was using to write about the land opened up that, you know, that, that retrieval again. So I had to, you know, since, since the present was in such conflict with history in the past, you know, I had to research, I had to go back, I had to see what it was and finding, you know, daily Eagle, articles from the 1700s and like (laughs) you know what like literally what how they buried their dead uh, or you know how they didn't bury their dead you know coming across like all these artifacts about this community this land that i lived in again for so long it was you know it was rewarding it was rewarding that's how you know a writer's serious when they're doing that type of historical (laughs) research i mean gosh yeah and it's 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 probably really Cool to, to learn those things about a place. Gives you a lot more power in your writing. Mm-hmm. Another research thing I, I want to talk about, because I felt like it was one of the most important parts of the book, is the, the people that helped you learn about birthing doulas mm-hmm. yeah. and the, the importance of them in communities. So can you talk about how you approached that and what you learned to be able to put it so right. so well in this story? So I had to, again, another kind of situation where... because. For the longest, um, for the longest, this book was a singular kind of voice. It was Kali, you know, that voice had been with me for a while. I related to that voice, you know, a young man just growing up in this place. Um, and it wasn't until I found, um, Key's voice, his mom, that the entire story opened up for me. And I was like, oh, this is about ghost and history and like you know so you know it was um i guess it was sorry could you remind me of the question yeah yeah the birthing doulas the birthing doulas right yeah and how that played into yeah key story right so like when she uh, when she reveals herself to me or her, her voice kind of reveals itself to me there was this seeing seeing death right but then it was it was interesting to me, like if we're talking about life as this kind of cyclical thing, if she has this proximity to the dead and she sees the dead, you know, imagine that proximity to life. And what would that look like? So, you know, kind of wanted her to be a doula, yeah. <laughs> a birthing doula. And she's a little bit of a deaf doula in, in a way. But so for me... um, it was asking people that I knew either had a, 
a doula for their for their own birth was an actual doula or considered a doula and maybe went another kind of direction. So I was able to speak to an actual doula. I was able to speak to women who had actually been through that process. So understanding kind of both sides of it. Um, so I think, you know, I couldn't have written that without, you know, that information or talking to people, you know, and that, you know, cause I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a woman, <laughs> but, but I've grown up around black women. I've grown up around women. I was raised, uh, mostly by, by women. Um, so I hoped, I prayed <laughs> that I'd be able to give dignity and, and, and give kind of respect to women who had been through that or those experiences or were working in that field. Um, yeah. It was, impo- it was like, I couldn't have, I couldn't have written it without doing that research. Yeah. And like I said, I mean, it w- I was blown away at that, that you took that time because, you know, just listening to those stories, it, it becomes evident how important people, again, can be ignored in communities right. of their relationship to the, the mm-hmm. things that tether us, life and death. Right. right. And, you know, that history, you had a quote, oh my gosh, you could tell the histories of a community and how they gave birth and the ways in which they buried their dead. We ourselves are markers, right? We have been just like this for centuries, boiling water, laying out rags, soothing a young girl with coos and whispers, all while at the helm of a war being waged against our existence. Mm-hmm. And it just feels like, you know, that the mothers in the story, right, reflect the women in your own yeah. upbringing. Right. And that kind of says it, right? It's like against all odds, right. this community is still supporting each other. And uh, I just thought it was just a special ode yeah. to those people and um, how much you know, work they do, mm-hmm. even in environmental threats, you know, mm-hmm. social threats, poverty. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I just, uh, I thought that was, you know, stand the tall and wet portal of generations mm-hmm. and women keeping that together. I thought that was really, really special. Um, I am, you know, really curious about one, one last quote that I'd love to talk about because we, we, uh, we touched on the global nature of this story, but the one that hit me is if you were poor, you'd already been indoctrinated into the global community mm. could see specific problems of a township mm-hmm. favela housing project and see yourself like a shard of glass mm. used like a mirror talk about that perspective and how that deals with the, the global connectedness of these struggles in your neighborhood mm-hmm. yeah um yeah well first this of any kind of disenfranchised community that you know, everyone on the outskirts has a better view of the center, right? And I wish I could recall. Like it sounds, sounds like Foucault, but I, I don't. I don't. It's someone who um, conveyed this to me. But essentially, like people on the outskirts or push the outskirts of society can see the center. They can see empire. They can ju- they can see it clearly, <laughs> um, even in a kind of metaphorical way like I, I used to be able to see the twin towers from my from my apartment building um i seen when they came down um i could still see a bit of like midtown or whatever and this is like the edge of brooklyn right um and then we 
and then, as I said earlier, like we funnel into the city, we we funnel into you know workplaces, into uh, you know all these forms of you know government, uh, these these kind of state jobs. Um, I guess we are very mindful of kind of the ways in which the world works to kind of break us because we, we see it every day, (laughs) you know, poor people or working people, you know, they see the, um, the housing manager that turns away their, their tenant application. You know, they see, you know, the teacher who comes into a classroom who, who, you know, maybe just graduated college and is doing TFA and just wants to kind of like, you know, get get a job with good money and stuff like that and doesn't necessarily care. Yeah. But we see these kind of um the ways in which the system works against us, but you know, from a up close kind of um and personal way. Um so I feel like people, you know, living around Empire or, or servicing Empire will always have a clearer view of, you know, how power works. You know, I when I went to college and, you know, all these things they, they gave me again the language, the the theory, the um you know, the way to a way to kind of describe these things. But growing up I always knew what this was. You know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah, again, I think people don't necessarily have the language for it, but but working, you, you don't think working people know how, <laughs> how, um, you know? Yeah, because they do. Yeah, how capitalism wages war on people, you know? And yeah, how big of an injustice to say because they don't have certain language that that story's not meaningful? Which I think you show just how important it is in a really powerful way. And um, like I said, I I'm so glad this book is out in the world. I'm so glad I got okay. to read it and talk to you about it. And uh, I appreciate you. For it, it's a gift. It's a gift to us. And I hope you keep writing for a long time. And I'm excited to follow what's next. Appreciate it. So thank thanks you. for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Right on Mississippi is produced in partnership with Mississippi Public Broadcasting for the Mississippi Book Festival, the South's literary lawn party. 